Hello? Is it working? Yeah? Uh, no? <laughs> okay. How's that? It's uh, my pleasure tonight to introduce three and not four Brazilian writers. One, w one Brazilian was unable to make it. How's that? You hear me now? Okay. Uh, João Baldo Ribeiro could not make it, but uh, we'll have three Brazilian writers here tonight who are being brought to you by uh, Pan American Center and um, Avon Books and the New York uh, Department of Cultural Affairs. Um, transportation for some of the authors was also provided by the Ford Foundation in Brazil. It's my pleasure to introduce, since I'm not good at this, uh, Hortense Kalischer, um, author of the new novel Mysteries in Motion, to present to you the authors tonight. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes? yes? Um, well, he may be shy about telling you uh, uh, these things, but he has provided me with all the information. And uh, it, it's uh, because, like many of us here, my knowledge uh, of Brazilian authors is entirely dependent on what is published here, and it's just beginning to be. Uh, I, we have the pleasure tonight of three distinguished writers from Brazil. Uh, Ivan Angelo and Lydia Fagundes Teles and Ignacio de Loyola Brondaio. And the lady on his left is going to translate and Tom Colchi will also translate. I will briefly What's give... Sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> See, you have to help me out. Um, first, I'd like to read you just briefly from the biography material in each of uh, the books that I have. Mr. Angelo's Celebration. Um, he is a professional journalist and managing editor of the Journal da Tarde, the influential evening daily in Sao Paulo. Uh, he's published a collection of short stories, which won the principal literary prize of his home state. Uh, a second work appeared in 79, and he is now at work on a novel about a Brazilian politician's career. And the celebration has been published in France uh, as well as here. Uh, and it came out in Brazil in 19... 76. Uh, Ligia Fagundes Teles was born in Sao Paulo, and today she is a lawyer, and she has published three novels, half dozen novellas, and seven short story collections. Uh, in 1969, she was awarded the Cannes Prix Internationale des Femmes, for her story before the Green Masquerade. The Girl in the Photograph, which has been the novel that has been published here, uh, has won three prizes uh, in Brazil, that of the Academy of Letters, the Fiction Prize of the Association of Art Critics, and 
a prize from the Association of Brazilian Publishers. We also have with us uh, a guitarist and singer, Tuse de Abreu, who will play for us as well. Now, I'd like to also give you some of what Tom Colchi gave me to inform me. Hello? What? Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, here I am. Ignacio de Loyola Brandeiro uh, also began a career in journalism, writing reviews for the films that played at the only cinema in his hometown. And at 20, he moved to Sao Paulo, and he worked for the principal newspapers of the state capital until 79. Now, the novel that's been published here, Zero, was finished in 1969, but it wasn't published until five years later when it was accepted by an Italian publisher. It wasn't published in Brazil until 1975 when it brought considerable scandal, but extraordinary praise and a number of literary prizes, including the Brasilia Prize um, in 1976. Uh, it was banned by the Ministry of Justice in 1976. Then there was a national protest in 1977. The ban was lifted in 79, and Zero returned. And this is the first English-language edition of this book. Um, we are, of course, here getting, have been for years, getting used to what we think of as Samizdat literature, which is totally underground. But possibly we're less familiar with the kind of book that sometimes gets banned, sometimes is allowable, but cloaks what it has to say in political protest in the form of fiction. Uh, as I understand it, I, I, uh, two of these books does that, the other may do it in, an, in another way. During World War II, for instance, I, uh, Isaac Dennison published a book that was a veiled criticism. It was a fiction book. Uh, also, Alberto Moravia did one. And I'm sure all around the world we could find other examples. Tom says... about the music. Most of us are familiar with Brazilian music of the contemporary variety. Um, whereas Brazilian literature until quite recently has remained a rather shadowy figure within the American literary landscape. Part of this has to do with language, that magnificently difficult Portuguese. Part of it with the politics of censorship that have clouded the recent history of Brazil. For while the rest of Latin America in Spanish was enjoying a flourishing boom of writers in exile, writers like these Brazilians before you were engaged in an intellectual struggle at home under the military dictatorship which had come to power in 1964. It is not surprising then that one of the novels to be read from tonight was banned during that period, and that another may be read in one sense as a meditation on the effect 
of censorship upon our perceptions of reality. Yet the interests of these three Brazilian writers who are here with you are, above all, profoundly literary. And politics is only one facet of the perceptions and preoccupations that inform their work, as you will see in each of their readings. I believe they're going to have the English first given you so that when they read, you may have a better sense of what they're reading. It's my pleasure now to listen with the rest of you. Uh, the first writer I want to introduce uh, will be Eva Angelo, and actually um, we decided to have them read in Portuguese first so that the first impact is in the real language in which they're written and the translation as always is an approximation. Um, so I just want to read you uh, a brief summary of Eva Angelo's The Celebration and then we'll be reading one part of it. In one of the most controversial novels to emerge from modern Brazil, Ivan Angelou tells of the strange reality of Latin America as revealed by the omissions of censorship. The time is the evening of March 30, 1970, when a group of wealthy people gather for a birthday celebration. Simultaneously, a group of migrant workers is halted from settling in the town by the police. In time, the two groups come together and become involved in one another's activities. And the police begin their investigation, their degradation and torture of the workers and the party goers. And then it's only in the long final chapter or story of, called After the Celebration that the police put together their conclusion about the stories that have preceded. And in a sense, the, author, the reader likewise puts that story together. And the several stories that began the novel uh, end up in their climax. Upon his publication in 1976, Ivan said, I hope to make the reader an accomplice not only in shaping the actual text, but in determining its significance, since my intention has been to provide wider participation in the terrible problems we face at the moment in Brazil. The particular text he's going to read tonight is um, one section of the novel, one short story, which deals with the preoccupations of a police commissioner in 1968, who eventually, as it were, solves the case in his own way. Okay, Yvonne. Thank you. They'll probably read part of the text in Portuguese, and then the whole thing will be read in English. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dan. Thank you for coming this night. <clears throat> Ouço a cada dia crescerem as preces, os lamentos. Sei que nos bairros da periferia, grandes automóveis com choferes bem vestidos descarregam senhoras carregadas de joias nas portas de macumbeiros e jogadores de búzios. Já há quem acredite mais nos horóscopos do que nos médicos e nos corretores. O dia de Iemanjá já se transforma num rival do Ano Novo em cidades como Rio de Janeiro e Bahia. O raciocínio é novamente ameaçado pelo milagre. 
Aumenta a venda de baralhos, mas não surgem novos jogadores de pôquer. Por isso há razões para suspeitar que a leitura das cartas voltou a ser moda nas festinhas da classe média. O povo não pode ser abandonado nesse momento à sua própria perda. Muita coisa foi feita para tirá-lo daquele mundo mágico em que vivia. Seus governantes não são mais escolhidos pela beleza, pelo carisma de um bigode, pelo sorriso do avô, de avô por ter mãos pequenas. O ensino da aritmética já não se faz pelo processo de adivinhação e de tabuada. E os professores tiveram de aprender, a custo, a teoria dos conjuntos. No estudo da literatura, as palavras vão perdendo sua antiga arrogância bárbara e nós estudamos a limpidez da sílaba, da letra, do espaço branco. O pé de meia foi desmoralizado pela Bolsa de Valores. A igreja desmistificou alguns dos chamados santos, o que leva o povo a desconfiar de toda a impalpável hierarquia. O agricultor já acredita mais nos sais minerais do que na ave maria. Nós vamos substituir o jogo do bicho pela loteria esportiva, controlada pelos computadores. Isso acabará com a superstição e a interpretação de sonhos, substituindo-os pelo grande prêmio computadorizado semanal. Depois de todo esse trabalho, não se pode permitir que retornem as preces místicas. O progresso não pode ser entregue novamente ao improviso dos talentos. Conseguimos organizar um plano científico e criar uma elite de técnicos para conduzir a nação na linha íngreme dos gráficos de produção. A nova elite que substituiu os barões do gado, do café, os pelegos, os corruptos, os fanáticos, os políticos, não pode ter seu trabalho prejudicado por essas crescentes ilusões. Eu não posso permitir que isso aconteça. Proibir a entrada de ciganos. Os filmes de terror são controlados. Conversas ao pé do fogo são consideradas suspeitas. Os espetáculos dos grandes mágicos do circo são precedidos de uma advertência ao público de que a apresentação consta de uma série de truques, puro ilusionismo, tudo explicável. E o respeitável público tem direito de uma explicação, se desejar. É o fim do grande segredo dos mágicos. Protestaram ingenuamente, não compreendendo que era exatamente isso que eu pretendia. O povo agradecido faz filas após os espetáculos, buscando as explicações. O povo, ficou demonstrado, é ávido de clareza, fascinado pela verdade, e está ansioso para trocar sua ignorância pelo conhecimento. Nos circos, o embuste foi substituído pela técnica, pelo fazer melhor. Em cada ação, deve um príncipe trabalhar no sentido de conquistar a fama de grande homem. Ninguém pode me acusar de parcial, ou venal, ou desorganizado, ou cafajeste. Procuro tratar a todos com a mesma justiça e força. Os homens hesitam menos em ofender aos que, fazem, aos que se fazem amar do que aos, se fazem, aos que se fazem temer. Ensina o mestre dos príncipes. Eu não permito o suborno. Não há um só policial desonesto sob as minhas ordens. Exijo unhas cortadas. Proibi alfinetes de gravata. Há punições para o que coçar o sexo em público, tirar a cera do nariz ou usar brilhantina. O veto às manifestações públicas vale igualmente para todos os fanáticos, cristãos, marxistas, umbandistas, milagreiros, políticos, budistas, maconheiros. Fui acusado de prepotente, nunca de ser injusto ou parcial. É meu dever zelar por todos e a todos proteger por igual contra si mesmos. Um príncipe sábio, amando os homens como eles querem e sendo temido por eles como ele quer, deve somente evitar ser odiado. Agora o Tom.
preoccupations of a police commissioner, 1968. Day by day, the prayers multiply. I hear them, the lamentations. I am cognizant of the fact that in the outlying slums, carefully attired chauffeurs driving limousines are delivering jewel-bedecked proper ladies to the doors of fortune tellers, witch doctors, and other purveyors of the black arts. Already there are those who hold more faith in horoscopes than in brokers or physicians. The festival of the sea goddess Jemanja actually rivals New Year's Eve in cities like Rio and Bahia. Reason, once again, is threatened by the miraculous. The sale of playing cards has risen sharply, with no corresponding increase in the popularity of poker. And there is reason to suspect that cartomancy itself is back in vogue in middle-class cocktail parties. At a time like this, the people must not be abandoned to their self-indulgence. After so much effort has been made to lift them from the superstitious world, in which they once floundered. At least their leaders are no longer chosen on the basis of personal magnetism for the charisma of a mustache, a grandfatherly smile, or delicate hands. Instruction in mathematics has ceased to be simple guesswork and multiplication tables, while teachers are now required to master such difficult subjects as set theory. In the field of literature, words are shedding their former barbaric arrogance as we come to appreciate the limpidity of the syllable, the phoneme, the white space. Even the nest egg has given way to the stock exchange, and the church, in its efforts to demystify a number of dubious saints, has caused the people to wisely mistrust the whole intangible hierarchy. Farmers, at least, put more faith now in nitrates than in Ave Marias. And we are well on the way to replacing spurious numbers games with a lottery run by the state, controlled by a computer. This will spell the end to superstition and dream interpretation, both of which will be substituted by weekly drawings. After these accomplishments... Are we to allow the people to lapse once again into mystical invocation? Progress must not fall back upon the hands of improvised talent. Not after we have at last set the nation on a truly scientific course with a corps of technocrats competent to guide the ship of state up the steep slopes of production graphs. This professional elite now that it has finally replaced the old coffee barons and cattle barons, the phony labor leaders, the provincial political bosses, both fanatical and corrupt, this elite core of technocrats must not have their work suddenly spoiled by the onset of a new illusionism. I cannot permit this to happen. So I have banned the immigration of gypsies. Films dealing with the supernatural topics are rigorously state-controlled. Even fireside incantations are subject to immediate investigations. And the performances of circus magicians are now preceded by public announcements 
to the effect that each show consists merely of a number of obvious tricks, total illusions, everything quite explicable. After all, a respectable public has a right to an explanation whenever they desire. But this spells the end of the great bond of secrecy among all musicians, magicians, some have protested ingenuously, ignorant of the fact that this was precisely my intention. The people themselves, however, are grateful. Lining up after every performance, awaiting explanations, because the people, as has been overwhelmingly demonstrated, are ever avid for clarity, fascinated with the truth, and anxious to exchange their ignorance for knowledge. In the circus, therefore, artifice has given way to enlightenment, to self-improvement. In this, in his every action, therefore, must a prince spare no effort to attain his reputation of greatness. Now, no one can accuse me of partiality, venality, disorderedness, vulgarity. I have always sought to treat every man to equal force or justice. For men hesitate less to offend those who make them love than those who make them fear. The master of all princes has taught me this. I permit no bribes. There is not a single dishonest policeman under my command. I demand that fingernails be cut. Tie clasps are forbidden. There are strict penalties for those who indulge in scratching their private parts in public, who pick their noses, who use brilliantine. The veto on public demonstrations applies equally to all fanatics. Christian, Marxist, voodoo, miracle workers, political activists, marijuana smokers, Buddhist monks. I may have been accused of being despotic, but never biased or unjust. It is my responsibility to watch over everyone impartially, protecting each from the other and all of you from yourselves. A wise prince, loving men as they wish to be loved and feared by them as he wills to be feared, need only avoid their hatred. From the very heart of my people, I can sense the growing cry, protect us for our own sakes, do what must be done to dispel this mounting anguish, this new fanaticism, this mystic madness among the younger generations. We were so at peace with the older order of things, secure in our labors, confident of our predictions, a drop in inflation, a rise in the stock market, victory in the soccer cup, an increase in per capita income, the irrigation of the Northeast. Then along comes this carefully organized conspiracy of fanatics to perturb our every certainty. As it is, we can no longer wake up at six in the morning with the same sense of optimism about falling peacefully asleep following the 10 o'clock soaps. We can no longer watch the news without spotting our own children running through the streets with senseless placards in their hands, or with glazed eyes, or playing rock music. We can no longer rely on the church when the voice from the pulpit no longer speaks to us, and the priests themselves prefer to pursue the new fanaticism 
of the latest golden calf. Yet we cannot appeal to law because there is nothing in the law to protect us from this exceptional menace. Only absolute authority can save us, cry the people. Save us, prince. The consequences are all too clear to me. Following the protesting of students and priests, the inundation of hippies, the resurgence of native dancing on nights of the full moon, barbarism itself will foster acts of flagrant disobedience. A lack of objectivity will characterize endless sterile discussions in the meetings of lofty executives. The politic politicians who worship at the altar of modern myths will judge themselves right to question even the authority of Congress, as has already begun to happen. Then the acts of false heroism, bombings, kidnappings, will grow more and more commonplace, thus relieving the boredom, I suppose, of a new generation of fanatics. And in the arts, several mimics will juggle about a number of such disorders, trying to lend them a system and thereby revive some dead ideology. Newspapers will take advantage of the prevailing weakness to demand a return to that older democracy of rights while performing lurid autopsies on long extinct corruptions. Then leaders will arise, and with them, chaos. A prince should always live among the people, avoiding a need for the powerful and thereby at liberty to reward or deprive the latter of influence of any kind. Yet he must never put his trust in any of the leaders arising from the people. Indeed, the people themselves fear such leaders who would straddle the chasm of death and perdition. Now can the prince wholly confide in the law or its judges, or entrust to them the matters of his people, lest his citizens too easily grow accustomed to obeying magistrates, and then in a crisis, a question of national security, refuse to obey their prince alone. My people are justified in their complaints. A growing fear looms over the hearth where there are not enough doctors to attend to the childbirth, where many are still reluctant to believe that man has circled the moon, where a certain herbal tea is held to be a cure for kidney ailments, where a special route at the front door of a house is thought to be the sentinel against the evil eye, and a rue leaf in the tub brings the bather good fortune. Who is there to defend them if not that authority which was once entrusted with the power to do so. I cannot forsake this responsibility. I would that I could, but I cannot. Today, I must make my decision. My own people plead no less of me. Help us, finally, to sleep without these explosions every night. Let our sons be educated, but not with this doctrine of hatred against us. We want politicians who care for the nation as a whole, not islands of special interest. It's war they demand of me, with all its inherent cruelty. 
I would rather they spared me, after all, an intellectual at heart. Yet how am I to refuse them when the time is at hand? If only time itself could cure these times. But my staff informs me they can no longer act without special powers. My clerks complain that those who are now detained actually laugh with impunity and lodge formal complaints, demanding rights, alleging immunities. Officers are stoned in the streets. Witch doctors prowl the houses of law enforcement officials in the middle of the night. And the cross, once a permissible sign, is suddenly presented as an amulet to ward off the undercover agents at the gates of suspect monasteries. The time has come to unleash the means of crushing all disorder, though the future may judge me cruel. For I have learned the appellation of cruel should not trouble the prince striving to maintain unity and order. On the contrary, he is more compassionate than those who would allow disorders, assassinations, and plunder to occur, because the latter compromise an entire people, whereas the executions wrought by a prince offend only individuals. And yet, why me? After all, I am an intellectual. I prefer to spend time reading Cicero in the original. Certain treatises on grammar bring me such pleasure as colleagues less rigorous than I find in detective novels. I have even drawn up a prospective monograph on the backwardness of the sciences due to the pressures brought to bear on Greek rationalism by a Christian idealism. Why me, then, in this unprincipled century? Why not myself from the very beginning, the prince? Thank you. Now we're going to have an interlude of music by Tuzé de Abreu. to sing a song written in a, a rhythm from the northeast part of Brazil named Xochi. It's not very good news out of Brazil, the Xochi. This Xochi was written by Jereba, a Brazilian musician, and by myself. It's named Você e Tu. Cada vez mais ele aumentou E nunca mais a gente esteve separado E nunca mais a gente se sentiu só E nunca mais a gente se sentiu só Nunca mais tive o que queixar da solidão Nunca mais tive medo da escuridão Porque eu tendo você ao meu lado Me sentia muito forte como lá no meu sertão 
Não foi assim que o sucesso lhe levou Você saiu dizendo que vinha me buscar Você esteve na TV eu não te vi Será meu Deus que não lhe vejo mais aqui Será meu Deus que não lhe vejo mais aqui Ouvi no rádio de manhãzinha Pela janela da cozinha da vizinha A sua voz cantando o beija-flor Abri a porta da gaiola e o canário avô Canarinho a voando, que beleza, meu amor. Oh, meu canarinho, que beleza, meu amor. Faz muito tempo que nosso amor começou. Daí pra cá, cada vez mais ele aumentou. E nunca mais a gente esteve separado. E nunca mais a gente se sentiu só. E nunca mais a gente se sentiu só. Nunca mais tive o que queixar da solidão. Nunca mais tive medo da escuridão Porque eu tendo você ao meu lado Me sentia muito forte como lá no meu sertão Não foi assim que o sucesso lhe levou Você saiu dizendo que vinha me buscar Você esteve na TV e eu não te vi Será, meu Deus, que não lhe vejo mais aqui Será, meu Deus, que não lhe vejo mais aqui Ouvi no rádio de manhãzinha pela janela da cozinha da vizinha A sua voz cantando o beija-flor Abri a porta da gaiola e o canário avoou Oh, meu canarinho avoando Que beleza, meu amor Oh, meu canarinho Que beleza, meu amor Oh, meu canarinho avoando Que beleza, meu amor Beleza, meu amor. I'd like to introduce Ligia Fagundes Telles, who is going to read from a story that's it was published a, a book of short stories called Seminário dos Ratos which came out in Brazil in, in 1978 and won the Penn Prize of Brazil that year and is forthcoming in English from Evan in a translation by Margaret Neves. Ligia? Tigrela. Encontrei Romana por acaso num café. Estava meio bêbada, mas lá no fundo da sua transparente bebedeira senti o depósito espesso subindo rápido quando ela ficava séria. Então a boca descia pesada, fugia o olhar que se transformava de caçador em caça. Duas vezes apertou minha mão. Eu preciso de você, ela disse. Mas logo em seguida já não precisava mais e o medo virava indiferença, quase desprezo, com um certo traço torpe engrossando o lábio. Voltava a ser adolescente quando ria. A melhor, ela era a melhor da nossa classe sem mistérios, sem perigo. 
fura belíssima e ainda conservava uh, traços da beleza, mas agora esta era uma beleza corrompida, triste até na alegria. Contou-me que se separou do marido, o quinto marido, e vivia com um pequeno tigre num apartamento de cobertura. Com um tigre romana, ela riu. Tiveram um namorado que andara pela Ásia e na bagagem trouxeram a tigrela dentro de um cestinho. Era pequenina sim, teve que criá-la com uma madeira. Crescera pouco mais do que um gato, desses de pelo fulvo, com listras tostadas, olhar de ouro. Dois terços de tigre e um terço de mulher. Foi se humanizando e agora... No começo, Tigrela me imitava tanto. Era engraçado. Comecei também a imitá-la e acabamos nos envolvendo de tal jeito que já não sei se foi, se foi com ela que aprendi a me olhar no espelho com um olho de fenda. Ou se foi comigo que ela aprendeu a se estirar no chão e deitar a cabeça no braço para ouvir música. Tigrela é tão harmoniosa, tão limpa, Disse Romana, deixando cair o cubo de giro no copo. O pelo é desta cor, acrescentou mexendo o uísque. Colheu na ponta dos dedos uma lâmina de gelo que derretia no fundo do copo. Trincou-a nos dentes. O som me fez lembrar de que antigamente ela costumava morder sorvete. Gostava de uísque essa tigrela, mas sabia beber. Ah, sim, sabia beber. Era contida. Só uma vez chegou a ficar realmente de fogo. E, Romano, e Romana sorriu quando se lembrou do bicho dando cambalhotas, rolando pelos móveis até pular no lustre e lá ficar se balançando de um lado para outro. De um lado para outro, fez Romana, imitando frouxamente o movimento de um Pêndulo. Despencou com metade do luxo no almofadão e aí dançamos um tango juntas. Foi atroz. Depois ela ficou deprimida e na depressão ela se exalta, sabe? Quase arrasou com o jardim, rasgou meu chambre, quebrou coisas. No fim, que se atirar do parapeito do terraço. Que nem a gente, igual, igual. Repetiu Romana, procurando o relógio no meu pulso. Recorreu ao homem que passou ao lado da nossa mesa. As horas, as horas. Quando soube que faltava pouco para meia-noite, baixou o olhar num cálculo sombrio. Ficou em silêncio. Esperei. Quando ela recomeçou a falar, me pareceu uma jogadora excitada, escondendo o jogo na voz artificial. Sabe, mandei fazer uma grade de aço em toda a volta da murita. Se ela quiser, ela trepa fácil nessa grade, é claro. Mas eu já nem sei que só, se, se só, que, que só tento o suicídio na bebedeira. E então, basta eu fechar a porta que dá para o terraço. Então ela fica quieta, fica presa. Está sempre tão lúcida, prosseguiu baixando a voz e seu rosto escureceu. O que foi, Romana? Eu perguntei, tocando-lhe na mão. Estava gelada. Fixou em mim o olhar astuto. 
pensava em outra coisa quando me disse que no crepúsculo, quando o sol batia de lado no topo do edifício, a sombra da grade se projetava até o meio do tapete da sala. E se Tigrela estivesse dormindo no almofadão, era linda a rede de sombra se abatendo sobre o seu pelo como uma armadilha. Mergulhou o dedo, no indicador, o dedo indicador no copo, fazendo girar o gelo do uísque. Usava nesse dedo uma esmeralda quadrada, como as rainhas. Mas não era mesmo extraordinário? O pouco espaço do apartamento condicionou o crescimento de um tigre asiático na sábia mágica da adaptação. Ela não passava de um gatarrão que exorbitou, como se intuísse mesmo que precisava se restringir. Não mais do que um gato aumentado. Só eu sei que cresceu. Só eu sei que notei que Tigrela está ocupando mais lugar, embora continue do mesmo tamanho. Ultimamente, sabe, mal cabemos as duas. Uma de nós teria mesmo que... Interrompeu para acender a cigarrilha, a chama vacilante na mão trêmula. Tigrela dorme comigo, mas quando está de mal, ela vai dormir no almofadão, de costas, dura como uma esfinge. Mas ela deve ter dado tanto problema, Romana. E os vizinhos? Perguntei. Romana endureceu o dedo que mexia o gelo. Não, ela não tinha vizinhos. Um apartamento por andar num edifício altíssimo, todo branco, estilo mediterrâneo. Você precisa ver como Tigrela combina com o apartamento. Eu andei pela, terra, pela Pérsia, você sabia, não? E de lá eu trouxe os panos, os tapetes. Ela adora esse conforto veludoso. É tão sensível ao tato, aos cheiros. Quando amanhece inquieta, acendo o incenso. O perfume a amolece. Ligo toca-discos. Então, ela dorme em meio de espreguiçamentos. Eu desconfio... Tigrela aceitara a ninha que era velha e feia, mas quase agredir a empregada anterior, uma jovem... Enquanto essa jovem esteve comigo, Tigrela praticamente não saiu do jardim, enfurnada na folhagem, o olho apertado, as unhas cravadas na terra. Tigrela. I bumped into Romana by chance in a cafe. She was half drunk, but far down at the bottom of her transparent drunkenness, I sensed a thick sediment which stirred up quickly when she became serious. Then her mouth curved downward, heavy. Her expression became fugitive. Twice she squeezed my hand. I need you, she said. But immediately afterwards, she didn't need me anymore, and her fear turned to indifference, almost scorn, with a certain torpidity thickening her lips. When she laughed, she was adolescent again, 
the best of our class without a doubt, without a danger. She had been beautiful and still was, but her now corrupted beauty was sad even when she was happy. She told me she had separated from her fifth husband and was living with a small tiger in a penthouse. <laughs> with a tiger, Romana, she laughed. She'd had a boyfriend who had traveled through Asia, and he had brought back Tigrella with the baggage in a little basket. She was teeny-weeny and had to be raised on a bottle. She had grown to be just a little bigger than a cat, the kind with tawny fur and toast-colored stripes, golden eyes. Two-thirds tiger and one-third woman. She's gotten more and more human, and now... In the beginning, it was funny. She imitated me so much. And I started imitating her, too. And we ended up getting so involved with each other that I don't remember if it was she who taught me to look at myself slit-eyed in the mirror or, or if she learned from me to stretch out on the floor and rest her head on her arms to listen to music. She's so harmonious. So clean, said Romana, dropping an ice cube into the glass. Her fur is this color, she added, swirling the whiskey. With the tips of her fingers, she gathered up the thin blade of ice that was melting in the bottom of the glass. She crunched it between her teeth. The sound made me remember that she used to chew ice cream. This Tigrella liked whiskey, but she knew how to drink. She had self-control. Only once did she go so far as to get really smashed. And Romana laughed as she recalled the animal turning somersaults, rolling across the furniture until she jumped onto the chandelier and perched there swinging back and forth, Romana said weakly, imitating the movement of a pendulum. She crashed down with one half of the chandelier onto the big cushion where we danced a tango together. It was atrocious. Afterwards, she got depressed, and at such times she loses her temper. She almost leveled the garden, tore up my bathrobe, broke things. In the end, she wanted to throw herself off the parapet of the terrace, just exactly like a person. Exactly, repeated Romana, looking for the watch on my wrist. She appealed to a man who passed by alongside our table. The time, the time. When she learned that it was almost midnight, she lowered her eyes in sober calculation. She remained silent. I waited. When she began talking again, she seemed to me like an excited player hiding her strategy behind an artificial voice. I had steel railings attached to the wall all around. If she wants, she can climb this railing easily, of course. But I know she'd only attempt suicide if drunk, and so I can just close the door that leads to the terrace. She's always so sober, she went on, lowering her voice. Her face darkened. What is it, Romana, I asked, touching her hand. It was icy. She fixed her eyes on me astutely. She was thinking of something else when she told me that at sunset, when the light slanted over the top of the building, the shadow of the railing was projected halfway across the living room rug, and if Tigrella was sleeping on the big cushion, the pattern cast over her fur by the shadow was beautiful, like a net. She stirred the ice cube in her glass of whiskey with her index finger. On this finger, she wore a square-cut emerald, like queens do. But wasn't it extraordinary, really? The limited space of the apartment conditioned the growth of an Asiatic tiger through the magic wisdom of adaptation. She's really nothing more than an overgrown tabby, as though she intuited the need to restrict herself, no bigger than a cat. 
I alone realize that she's grown. I'm the only one who notices that she's taking up more space, even though she's still the same size. Lately, there's hardly room for us both. One of us will really have to... She interrupted herself to light a small cigarillo, the flame flickering in her trembling hand. She sleeps with me, but when she's in a huff, she goes to sleep on the big cushion on her back, stiff as a sphinx. There must have been so many problems. What about the neighbors, I asked. Romana stiffened the finger which whirled the ice. There aren't any neighbors. One apartment per floor in a very tall building, all white, Mediterranean style. You should see how well Tigrella matches the apartment. I traveled through Persia, you know, don't you? And I brought back fabrics, rugs. She adores this velvet comfort. She's so sensitive to the touch of things, to smells. When she wakes up restless, I light the incense. The perfume calms her. I turn on the record player, and then she stretches herself all over and sleeps. I suspect she sees better with her eyes closed, as dragons do. I had some trouble convincing Anina that she was merely a well-developed cat. Anina is the maid. But now everything's fine. The two of them keep a certain distance, but respect each other. The important thing is this respect. She accepted Anina, who was old and ugly, but she almost attacked the former maid, a young girl. As long as this girl was with me, Tigrella practically didn't come out of the garden. Hidden among the foliage, her eyes slits, her fingernails dug into the ground. Fingernails, I began and forgot what I was going to say next. The emerald slid sideways like an unsupported head and clinked against the glass, the finger too thin for the ring. The sound of the stone hitting the glass roused Romana, momentarily apathetic. She lifted her head and gazed vacantly at the full table. Such noise, eh? I suggested we leave, but instead of the bill, she called for another whiskey. Don't worry, I'm used to it, she said and breathed deeply. She straightened her body. Tigrella liked jewels and Bach. Yes, Bach, especially the Passion According to St. Matthew. One night, while I was dressing to go out to dinner, she came to watch me. She hates it when I go out, but that night she was happy. She approved of my dress. She prefers classic clothes. And this was a long gown of straw-colored silk, long sleeves, a low waistline. Do you like it, Tigrella? I asked. And she came and put her paws on my lap, licked my chin lightly so as not to spoil my makeup, and began to pull on my amber necklace with her teeth. Do you want it? I asked. And she growled, polite but firm. I took off the necklace and put it over her head. She saw her reflection in the mirror, her eyes moist with pleasure. Then she licked my hand and went off with the necklace dangling about her neck, the largest beads dragging on the floor. When she is calm, her eyes turn a pale yellow, the color of amber. Does a niña sleep in the apartment, I asked, and Romana gave a start as if she had just then become conscious of the fact that a niña arrived early and left at nightfall. The two of them did sleep there alone. I gave her a long look, and she laughed. I know, you think I'm crazy, but nobody understands it from the outside. It's complicated, and yet so simple. You have to get inside to understand. I put on my jacket. It had gotten cooler. Do you remember, Romana? Our graduation party. I still have the picture. You bought some shoes for the dance that were too tight. You ended up dancing barefoot during the waltz. I saw you whirling around from far away, your hair loose, your dress light. I thought it was beautiful, 
you dancing like that. She looked at me attentively, but didn't hear a single word I said. We're vegetarians. I've always been a vegetarian, you know. I didn't know. Tigrella eats only legumes, fresh herbs and milk with honey. Meat doesn't come in through our door because meat gives you bad breath. And ideas, she said, clutching my hand. I need you. I bent over to listen, but the waiter's arm reached out to empty the ashtray, and she became frivolous again, interested in the cleanliness of the ashtray. Had I by chance tried milk, watercress, and honey beaten up together? The recipe was very simple. You just whipped everything in the blender and then strained it through a sieve, she added, extending a hand. Do you have the time, sir? Is there someone you have to meet, something you have to do? I inquired, and she replied, no, she had nothing coming up. Absolutely nothing, she repeated, and I had the impression she grew paler as her mouth opened slightly to return to her obscure calculations. With the tip of her tongue, she caught the diminished ice cube and chewed it. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen, she said with slight difficulty as the ice burned her tongue. I kept still. A large gulp of whiskey seemed to give her back some warmth. One of these nights when I go home, the porter may come running up to tell me, did Madame know, from one of these terraces, but then maybe he won't say anything and I'll have to take the elevator up, acting very natural so he doesn't notice anything, to gain one more day. Sometimes we meditate, and I don't know the results. I taught her so many things, I learned so many others, she said, beginning a gesture but not finishing it. Had she told me Anina was the one who trimmed her fingernails? She would offer a paw without the least resistance, but she didn't let her brush her teeth. She had very sensitive gums. I bought her a natural bristle toothbrush. You have to brush in a downward direction, very lightly, mint-flavored toothpaste. She did not use dental floss because she never ate anything fibrous, but if she ever needed it, she knew where to find it. I ordered a sandwich. Romana ordered raw carrots, well-scrubbed. With salt, she advised, pointing to her empty glass. We didn't speak while the waiter poured the whiskey. When he left, I started laughing. But is it really true, Romana, all this? She didn't answer. She was adding up her memories again, and one of them was leaving her short of air. She breathed deeply, loosening the knot in her scarf. Then I saw the purple bruise on her neck. I looked toward the wall. I could see in the mirror when she retied the knot and sniffed her whiskey. She smiled. Tigrella knew when whiskey wasn't genuine. To this day, I can't distinguish them, but one night she gave a paw swat to a bottle and it flew across the room. Why did you do that, Tigrella? She didn't answer. I went to look at the pieces of the bottle and saw it was a brand that had once given me a hallucinating hangover. Can you believe she knows more about my life than Yazbek? And Yazbek was more jealous of me than anyone else. He kept a detective watching me. She pretends not to pay any attention, but her pupils dilate and spill over like black ink spreading over her eyes. Have I mentioned those eyes? In them I see her emotions, her jealousy. She becomes intractable. She refuses her shawl, her pillow, and goes into the garden which I had specially planted, a miniature jungle. She stays there all day long and through the night, hidden in a thicket of foliage. I can call her until I drop, but she won't come, her nose moist with dew or tears. 
I stared at the ring of water left on the tabletop by the glass. But Romana, wouldn't it be more humane to send her to the zoo? Let her go back to being an animal? I think it's cruel to impose your own cage on her this way. What, what if she's happier in the other kind? You've enslaved her and ended up enslaving yourself. You must have. Aren't you at least going to give her the freedom to choose? Impatiently, Romana dipped her carrot into the salt. She licked it. Freedom is comfort, my dear, which Tagrella knows also. She has every comfort, just as Yazbek had before disposing of me. And now you want to dispose of her, I said. At one of the tables, a man started to sing a snatch of opera at the top of his lungs, but quickly his voice submerged in laughter. Romana spoke so quickly I had to interrupt. Slower, I can't understand you. She reined in her onrush of words, but soon they began galloping ahead again, as if she hadn't much time left. Our most violent fight was because of him, Yazbek, you know. All that confusion of an old love who suddenly reappears. Sometimes he calls and then we sleep together. She knows perfectly well what's happening. Once she heard us talking. When I got back, she was awake, waiting for me as still as a statue in front of the door. Of course, I covered up as well as I could, but she's intelligent. She sniffed at me until she discovered the scent of a man on me. She went wild. I think now I'd like to have a unicorn. You know, one of those blondish horses with a pink horn on its forehead. I saw one in a tapestry. It was so in love with the princess, she offered it a mirror to look at itself. Waiter, please, can you give me the time and bring more ice? She went for two days without eating. Tigerish, continued Romana. She spoke slowly now, her voice thick, one word after the other, with calculated little adjustments in the empty spaces. Two days without eating, dragging her necklace and her arrogance around the house. I wondered. Yazbek had promised to call, and he didn't. He sent me a note. Why is your phone dead? When I went to look, I discovered the cord chewed completely through, the tooth marks all the way up and down the plastic. She didn't say a thing, but I could feel her watching me through those slits of eyes. They can penetrate walls. I think that on that same day, she read my thoughts. We began to distrust each other. But even so, do you see, she used to be so full of fervor. Used to be, I asked. She opened her hands on the table and challenged me. Why are you looking at me that way? What else could I do? She must have wakened around 11. It's the time she always wakes up. She enjoys the night. Instead of milk, I filled her saucer with whiskey and turned off the lights. When she's desperate, she sees better in the dark. And today she was desperate because she overheard my conversation. She thinks I'm with him now. The door to the terrace is open. But then it stayed open on other nights and nothing happened. But you never know. She's so unpredictable. She added in a whisper. She wiped the salt from her fingers on a paper napkin. I'll be on my way. I'll go back to the apartment, trembling, because I never know whether or not the porter's coming to tell me that a young lady has thrown herself off the terraces, naked, except for an amber necklace.
another northeast rhythm, a slow rhythm named Toada. That Toada was written by me and a poeta from Bahia, a poet named Antonio Rizério. It's named Amanhecimento. Dos coquis, tira o sopro do verde, do vento no capim, alegria, alegrim. Tira o alívio pretinha das águas, tira o silêncio dos medos e das chuvas o ruído perto de mim. Traz isso tudo pretinha do céu E eu mudo, espero e muda a cor desse mel Num azul só meu is a book that doesn't follow an extremely smooth narrative thread where we could pick out a, a real specific section of the story. Um, we're going to read 
a one section, which is when the main characters, Jose Gonzalez and Rosa, meet each other. Well, it's after they've met, and they're going into the interior to meet Rosa's parents before they get married. And then we're going to read a few short pieces that give an idea of the kinds of fragments and sections that make up the book. And by a little bit, by way of explanation, Loyola has given me a few words to say about Zero. Zero is composed completely of fragments. It depicts a country which is torn apart, a country which has exploded. From these fragments, I reconstruct a portion of the history of Brazil which was marked by extreme violence. This is a story of a time in Brazil which should remain in the past, but which should not be forgotten. And it gives me almost as much pleasure to introduce Ignacio de Loyola Brandão as it did for me to finally meet him. Em busca do verossino de ouro. Corre o ônibus amarelo, azul, branco na estrada sem graça. Paisagem sem graça, os passageiros sem graça. Motorista, obedeça a sinalização, ela é a tua segurança. Nos domingos havia baile no clube e você, José, ficava em frente sentado nos bancos de granito, vendo as meninas da janela do clube, nos intervalos de dança, e você não podia entrar. E por isso você se lembra da cidade e das noites vazias de domingo e sente a bunda fria. Não ultrapasse nas curvas e lombadas. Lembra-se, José, do décimo dia na barraca do homem? Rosa conversava com o sujeito do outro banco porque não gosta de viajar sem conversar. E José não gosta de viajar conversando. Ela trouxe vitrola portátil e colocou o disco de Connie Francis. E um passageiro reclamou, ela emburrou e Rosa tem bobs na cabeça, nos lenço cara lavada e uma sandália havaiana para maior comodidade. Obedeça a sinalização e viaje tranquilo. José e Rosa estão viajando para o interior para que José peça a mão de sua noiva, segundo normas estabelecidas em nossa sociedade. Limite do município de Filho da. Em Filho da, consulte o seu revendedor Ford autorizado. O melhor restaurante da região, Jeca Tatu, oferece o melhor virado. Você está entrando em Filho da, o município mais progressista do país. Seis presidentes nasceram nessa cidade. As melhores faculdades de medicina e de direito. Seja bem-vindo. Seja um dos nossos folks 1600. Ponto de charretes da estação. Visite a colossal quermesse e pró-obras da Igreja Santo Anjo do Senhor. Na sala, cadeiras de palinha trançada, porta-chapéus com espelhos o pai e a mãe sentados, retratos dos avós, das tias que morreram, de rosa vestida de primeira comunhão, foto colorida à mão. Rosa de maiô, a faixa de Misa Armando Preces, Cristo e Nossa Senhora entronizados. O pai de paletó e gravata, a mãe no vestido de domingo. O pai quis, nome completo, idade, profissão, salário, reserva bancária, posses, casa, carro, marca do carro, Fox 1600, Corcel, Galaxy, terrenos. Sua família como, como é? De onde é? Do que morreu sua mãe? Fuma? Bebe? A saúde? A política? Deixaria minha filha tomar a pílula? 
pretendem ter filhos? Estudou, participou de passeata? O que acha do governo, do comunismo? É católico? José disse a verdade e José mentiu. O velho abraçou José. A mãe abençoou José e Rosa. Meu genro, logo vamos ter netinhos pela casa. Os olhos da mãe, alegria. O pai, os filhos são a alegria do lar. Então o pai explicou. Somos daqui, moramos nessa cidade há 150 anos. Quero dizer, a minha família está aqui há muitos e muitos anos. Sou do Rotary, do Lions, da Associação Comercial, do Tênis, do Náutico, tenho casas alugadas e organizamos festas de caridade. Me telefone, Benzinho. A cidade cheira a sexo. No ar, nas paredes e nas pessoas. Eu sei disso. Não sei como, mas sei. Rosa me disse que tem a sensibilidade estranha, descobridora e pré-monitora. Sensibilidade que avança para dentro das coisas e também para o futuro. À noite, principalmente, o sexo está no ar, acima das casas, nas pedras quentes, nos grupos que conversam nas calçadas, que andam na rua, talvez. Ele está ali, grudado nas meninas de minissaias, de pantalonas, nos corpos cheirando gessi, lux, palmolive, febo, eucalol, ok, carnaval, corpos soltos dentro dos vestidos de verão. Elas passam pelos rapazes e querem. E os rapazes também querem. E se estabelece uma corrente e as meninas ficam arrepiadas de pensar atrás do grupo, do cemitério, nas salas de jogo do tênis, nos atalhos em volta da cidade e nas beiras das estradas. Pegando e se deixando pegar. E os rapazes excitados apertam os aceleradores e os folks roncam. E os que não têm carro colocam as mãos nos bolsos. Fazias que estou aqui e não faço mais nada senão olhar, sentir, cheirar o sexo, o perfume, o suor, a terra quente. Observar o jogo de todas as noites, o nervosismo, a ânsia de contacto, pega o desejo aumentando, os gemidos que circundam a cidade, cidade rodeada de trepadas histéricas, as meninas se enterrando no pau dos rapazes, enquanto suas felizes mães veem televisão, novelas, Vão à reza e sonham com o futuro, casinhas, carros, netos, igreja aos domingos. Minha filha com o filho do doutor, grande médico. Minha filha com o filho do engenheiro, grande engenheiro. E elas, as filhas, fodem no mato, nos carros, de pé nos muros. Mordem, se mordem, gemem, gritam e se arrojam ao chão. Nas noites quentes dessa cidade. Ellen Watson, my translator. In search of the golden fleece, the blue and white and yellow bus rambled dully along the street past dull scenery carrying its dull passengers. Driver, obey the traffic signs, they are your security. On Sundays, they used to have dances at the social club, and Jose would sit outside on the cold granite benches watching the girls who stood near the window between dances, and you can't go in, Jose. That's why you're thinking about the city and those empty Sunday nights, and your buns feel cold. 
No passing on curves or hills. Jose, do you remember the tenth day in the man's white tent? Rosa was talking with the guy in the next seat because she didn't like to travel without talking and Jose didn't like to talk when he was traveling. Footnote. The recipe for a happy conjugal life includes mutual understanding, said my great aunt. She had brought along a portable record player and put on a Connie Francis song until a sullen-looking passenger complained. Footnote. Your freedom extends only until another begins. <laughs> Rosa had bobby pins in her hair with a fancy new hanky over them, and she wore a pair of Cuban sandals for maximum comfort. Footnote. Straps that really hold leather that does not smell. <laughs> Obey the traffic signs and have a safe trip. Footnote, Rosa to Jose on the bus. Honey, wouldn't it be good to have traffic signs to follow through life? It would be so much easier. All you'd have to do is follow. Jose and Rosa were traveling to the interior so Jose could ask for her hand in marriage, as per the established norms of society. Filioda city limits. In Filioda, be sure to visit your authorized Ford dealer. Come to Berto's Luncheonette for the best burger in town. Now entering Filioda, the most progressive city in the country, birthplace of six presidents, home of top medical and law schools. Welcome. Check out our Vogue 1600. House horse-drawn carriage rides through the park. Visit the Colossal Bazaar, sponsored by St. Angel of Our Lord Church Building Fund. Filioda Center, in the living room. Woven straw chairs, hat stands with mirrors, the father and mother seated among portraits of grandparents, aunts who have died, Rosa dressed up for First Communion, a hand-colored photo, Rosa in a bathing suit wearing the Miss Armando Presti's sash, Christ and Our Lady enthroned. <laughs> the father in a jacket and tie, the mother in a Sunday dress. The father wanted to know, Full name, age, profession, salary, savings, possessions, house, car, what brand? Vogue 1600, Corsell, Galaxy, any real estate? What's your family like and where are you from? What did your mother die of? Did she smoke, drink? How's your health, your politics? Would you let my daughter take the pill? Do you intend to have children? Where did you go to school? Did you participate in demonstrations? What do you think of the government, of communism? Are you Catholic? José told the truth. José lied. The old man embraced José. The mother, too, gave them her blessing. Well then, son-in-law, it won't be long before we have grandchildren running around the house, eh? The mother's eyes shining. Children are the happiness of a home. So, expounded the father, you should know that we're locals here in this town for 150 years. That's to say my family has been here these many, many years. I belong to the Rotary, the Lions Club, the Business Association, the Tennis Club, the Yacht Club. I have a little rental property. We're involved in organizing benefits for charity. Footnote. The truth about Rose's family is quite another story. Her father died years ago. And the widow moved away and married an Italian Turk, atheist, and owner of a bar. As the city expanded in the direction of the bar, the neighborhood became more and more middle class, and the bar became a busy restaurant. The Italian Turk opened a luncheonette, bought a chain of fabric stores, and a hamburger concession at the high school, where he exploited the students. After that, he turned Catholic, respectable, got a good credit rating, and managed to be admitted to the tennis club. Call me sweetie. 
This town reeks of sex. It's in the air, on the walls, on the people. It's sex, I'm sure of it. I don't know how, but I know. Rosa told me I have an odd sensitivity. I get premonitions, a sensitivity that sees inside of things and into the future. It's at night, mainly, that sex is in the air, above the houses, hovering over rocks that are still warm, above the groups conversing on the sidewalk, walking down the street. It's there, glued to the girls in miniskirts or tight pants, their bodies smelling of ivory, Lux, Palmolive, Fibo, Eucalol, OK, Carnival brand, their bodies loose inside summer dresses. They walk past the boys and want them, and the boys want them too, and a current is established, and the girls are terrified thinking about being alone in the bushes, in the cemetery, on the tennis court at night, along the shortcuts around town by the sides of the road, grabbing and letting themselves be grabbed. And the excited boys push hard on the accelerators, and the Volkswagens roar, and the ones without cars put their hands in their pockets. I've been here for days without doing anything besides looking, feeling, smelling, the sex, the perfume, the sweat, the hot earth. Studying the nightly game, nervousness, frenzy for contact, the lunge, desire doubling and redoubling, screams circling the town, the town enveloped by frantic fucking, girls burying themselves in boys' cocks while their mothers, happy, watch television, soap operas, pray and dream for the future. Houses, cars, grandchildren, church on Sundays. My daughter and the doctor's son, famous doctor. My daughter and the engineer's son, rich engineer. And they, the daughters, are out fucking in the woods, in cars, standing up in the garden. They're biting the boys, biting themselves, moaning, shouting, and fleeing themselves on the ground on hot nights in that town. A grid of orderly streets and trees, a big hotel and an ugly church under construction, a social club in the middle of the park, a concrete bus station next to the open market, a tall, homely tower with a square clock, the old railroad station, silent electric buses, businesses closed up tight, empty washed-up stores, the poor sales clerks, vestiges of the decadent age of the city, faces who pass, who greet each other, the town that lived on farming and today is nothing, no industry, just did not understand change. Banks, 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 one after the other, dozens and dozens of them. Where does so much money come from? Would you believe it? That boy was writing letters to my daughter. I called him and ordered him to stop. I asked politely, will you please do me the favor of not writing to her anymore? She's still a young girl. He was writing, well, strange things, bad things. He said it wasn't really important to get married. That's just an example. She liked it, but I put a stop to that all right. After all, what's a mo mother for? To make her daughter happy, that's what. So I phoned and said, do me the favor of not writing to my daughter anymore, please. Look, these fellows talk like they're so smart, so mature, but they're milk toasts. He stopped right away. Well, it made sense. Here we are, minding our own business, and these degenerates come and put nonsense into our daughter's heads, wanting her to leave town someday, huh? Look, my daughter's 15, has a perfect boyfriend, the son of a college president. She'll get married, she'll be happy. But once in a while, she writes something or other. 
She says she's going to be a writer, and I put a stop to that fast, such silliness. I'm keeping my eye on her. It's for her own good. A neighbor was talking to Rosa's mother. The woman must have been pretty when she was young, but like all the women in this town, I don't know why. Maybe it's the dry air or the sun, or maybe it's from staying in one place, waiting for the nothing that's supposed to happen tomorrow. Her skin was stiff, stretched taut, expectant. Her eyes shone, but with a hard brightness. To me, she was not just herself, but all compulsive people, hating to be bothered, irritable, not wanting anything to change. I didn't even know her, but I knew that she had done something terrible to her daughter and the boy who was writing her. You could see she had a knack for spying on happiness, spying happiness and finding a way to snuff it out. It made her happy. Footnote. A popular singer once introduced the song Maria Maria by saying, I would like to dedicate this song to all those who think of other people's love as an unpardonable sin. My contribution to everyone who compensates for their own unhappiness by wishing unhappiness on others. After she left, Rose's mother said, Such a nice woman, nice family. They live up past the gas station. You pass it on the way out of town. Funny, though, now I don't want to be a gossip, but isn't it odd? She acts like she's forgotten that she couldn't get married with a white dress and all. She was in a family way. I let her go on talking. What I wanted to do was leave, but Rosa said, no, let's stay a little longer. My father's taking a liking to you. So Jose spent the afternoon in the town library, full of books with red spines and students copying things out of the encyclopedia. There were three librarians. He was keeping his eye on the one who had arrived the same time he did. She had gotten out of an MG and had enormous glasses with blue lenses. She was small but densely packed. Once in a while, she would go up the stairs, and José could watch her shapely legs. That's why he spent the whole afternoon excited, without leaving his chair, without even glancing at the Jack London he had in front of him. Have you read any books by Scott Fitzgerald? Uh-huh. Do you have any here? Not a one, said the little brunette who had gotten out of the MG. Her face was a little broken out. José wanted to hang around. Who knows? Maybe someday he'd go out with the little brunette. She was called Sylvia. Now we'll go to the shorter sections. Official news flash. A drum roll. The Herald went up to his station. In urban areas, there were platforms every kilometer where Heralds made public proclamations. The government also used television, radio, ad agencies, etc., all anxious to get in on the right side of the fence. The president gave a dinner for media people and directors of ad agencies. After dinner, he asked those assembled to salute him. They did, smiling. Oh, what a joker, ta-ta-ta-ta, one salute after the other. Then the president made them kiss his boots. <laughs> what an incorrigible joker, they thought. Sure, we'll do it on a lark. It's good for a laugh. You first. No, please, after you. No, I think the biggest agencies should go first. So the men from the North American firms bent down gracefully and kissed the tip of the president's boot, just like that, one by one, until it came to the biggest figurehead of foreign business in the country. He knelt down and looked at the glossy boot, shined it up a little, kissed the toe, and bit into it, throwing himself on the floor, asking to be walked on. <laughs> 
<laughs> the government used newspapers and billboards, too. But it was decided that direct, sympathetic communication was best. The president adored old Hollywood films. He was an Errol Flynn and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. fan, and his favorite movie was Robin Hood. He remembered that in those old movies, there was always a herald who delivered the king's proclamations to the people. And so the herald proclaimed, My dear people, may the blessing of God the Omnipotent be upon you in an effort to combat superfluous spending and luxury, to establish general equality in the nation, and with the objective of eliminating jealousy, rancor, and hate between brothers, we, your government, have entered into an agreement with all domestic shoe factories, whereby just one type of shoe will be produced from this day forward for the entire country, male or female. It will be a closed-toed, simple design and will be available only in the discreet and attractive color black. Citizen, patriotism must exist inside each and every one of us. We must truly love our country. You and I and everyone must honor our national standard. May we be worthy of it. On Patriot's Day, put a flag in your window and participate in the festivities. I'd like a flag, please. One large and one small? Look, I only asked for one. You have to take two. Why? One for the house, the other for the parade. I don't go to parades. You have to. Holy resolution number seven. That's news to me. The notice came with the altitude tax. I didn't even look at mine. I, I never look at those stupid pieces of paper. There are so many. My wife takes care of them. Holidays. Patriot's Day, Soldier's Day, Proclamation Day, the President's birthday, the President's wife's birthday, the birthday of the goat who is mascot for Regiment 11, a heroic group in the war. The parades go on forever. The crowd, arranged in order of height, watches and applauds, spied on by the special police militia. Lots of clapping and flag waving. Jose, five foot six, and Rosa, only five feet tall, are separated. In their pockets, they carry their parade attendance books, properly stamped. An unstamped book can lead to tickets, jail terms from 10 days to a month, ineligibility to leave the country, and difficulty in finding employment. José was sleepy. He'd been out late last night in Boquerel. When the soldiers passed and a group started booing, he booed along with them. The police came out slugging and collecting parade books. Once a parade book has been collected, it is never returned. Your life turns to zero. José ran for it. He waited for Rosa at home, but she didn't show up. A short social call. Good morning, madam. I'm from the political police. Here is a card you and your husband should fill out. Then staple on two three-by-four photos. This little plastic bag is for a copy of the key to your house. The brown envelope contains a judicial order for the police to enter your house legally at any moment. Make sure you don't lose or misplace it. When one of the agents needs to come in, he will knock, ask for the court order, and only afterward come inside. Thank you. Oh, if you lose the court order, the penalty is three months in prison before you can get a second copy. Have a good day, madam. Respects to your husband, and God bless. Official news flash. 
the government has the great honor of announcing that nothing abnormal is going on. <laughs> the people need not worry. The Americans have asked permission to install a military base up north, which will give them access to all Latino Americana. This base will be a so-called trampoline for the actions of the New Alliance for Help to the Latino People, and will be very important because the North Americans will pay in dollars and bring up the exchange rate. Calm down, everyone. Footnote. The president to his aides. Anyone who doesn't calm down, wipe them out. <laughs> Don't think of this as an invasion or even an appropriation of territory, but just a little help from our friends. The Americas united, united they will win. Samba de roda. It's a kind of samba. Oh, invisible cage. Percebeu que podia ver todas as transas desse mundo E que tudo, 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 tudo é possível De se pensar Nesse dia você até falou Sobre a Ave Maria de Gunou Sobre o que você sente quando ouve todo dia às seis horas na igreja de Nazaré Ela toca
Mas você vive numa gaiola invisível E não aprendeu a voar Não aprendeu, não deu, não Mas vive numa gaiola invisível E não aprendeu a voar